Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Ezra. We'll be looking at Ezra chapter 4. And if you're wondering why are we in Ezra 4, you may recall that it seems like more than a month ago we were in Ezra 3. But an intervening trip to Uganda and a report has, has taken us away from our friend Ezra. And now we're back. As we begin looking uh, at Ezra chapter 4, you will remember that where we are is that Cyrus, the king of Persia, has declared a decree that the Israelites are to go back and to rebuild the temple, and the exiles have returned, and they've begun by building the altar and by laying the foundations for the temple. And when those foundations were laid, there were two competing cries. There was the cry of joy from those who saw that the work was going forward. And then there was the cry of anguish from those who saw it and compared it to the temple in its glory days that they had seen so many decades before. And now we come to chapter 4, and we see now that the building continues on, but it does face opposition. This is the very Word of God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient, and it is completely authoritative. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradeth and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, and the rest of their associates the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osniper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of this province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province, Beyond the river send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. 
They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace, it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We, made, we make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possessions in the province beyond the river. The king sent an answer to Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. Greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I make a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would teach us from Your Word. That You would teach us our own nature. That You would teach us the nature of the world. And that You would teach us Your nature, O Lord, of Your goodness, Your mercy, and Your grace. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, is there anything more difficult and discouraging than determined opposition? You know, it seems that life is hard enough to get through. The tasks of life are difficult enough to accomplish without opposition from others. People who stand in your way. People who put a hand in your face. People who discourage you and tell you you cannot do things. And this is especially discouraging today for the church at large, isn't it? We think and we think upon perhaps some golden age when the church had no opposition at all, when the church was in control, when it could set the pattern for the country, perhaps even for the world. Well, you see, I think what we see here in this text is that 
the church at large, the church here and each of us individually face opposition all the time. There is no golden age when opposition floats away. For you see, opposition comes from the wicked one and he opposes everything that the Lord does. And so it should not surprise us when we see opposition in the world or in our church or even in our own families. And so this evening I'd like us to look here at the opposition that the Israelites face in chapter 4. It's a bit of an interesting passage. And it could be a bit confusing unless you look at it closely. But what I would like us to see are three R's with respect to opposition. First, the reality of opposition. Second, the regularity of opposition. And then third, resisting opposition. Reality, regularity, and resisting. Well, let's begin then by looking at verse 1 at the reality of opposition. Now, remember the context of our story here. This is at the end of the Babylonian captivity, or perhaps the beginning of the end of the Babylonian captivity. God in His mercy has had Cyrus, king of Persia, pagan king of a pagan empire, pass a decree that the temple of the living God should be rebuilt with the funds of the Persian empire. So, we cannot lose sight as we look here at Ezra chapter 4, that in the beginning of Ezra, God has already done a work beyond anything we could imagine. I mean, could you imagine that? We've talked recently about perhaps expanding the back of our building out and, and dreamt about the day we will place a larger sanctuary out front. Could you imagine if we got a letter from the government of Iran saying that they were going to fully fund that? It's not even... It's not even on our radar, is it? We can't imagine it. And yet, that is what God has blessed the Israelites with. So as we begin to think about opposition, we must remember the great blessing that God has poured upon the people of God. And so, God in His mercy has had this decree, and now they have just laid the foundation of the temple. Things are moving forward. Spring is here. And they are about now to go to the next step. And here we see some folks come up and do something that we don't expect. They say, hey, we see you've got a building project going on here. Can we help? We'd love to move some stones out of the way for you. We'd love to set up some two-by-fours. Can't we help? We serve the same God that you do. We worship Him the same way you do. Now, you can imagine how welcome that would be on one level to the Israelites. It's spring and perhaps you are thinking about things that need to be done around your house. Weeding, putting in new mulch beds, trimming trees, all of the sprucing that goes up around the house. Could you imagine if some good, strong, sturdy teens came up to you and said, can we do some of that for you? You'd be downright excited. Sure. Let me get you some implements. Let me get you some And yet what happens here is, even though there is every reason to accept this, Zerubbabel and Jeshua respond in a way that we don't expect. They say, 
You have nothing to do with what we're doing. The, the language is, dare I say it, rude. They say, it's no concern of yours what we're doing. We don't need your help. We don't want your help. It's not proper to take your help. Why? Does that seem odd to you? Well, perhaps you are clued off by the beginning here of verse 1 where it speaks of the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. But they surely don't seem like adversaries, do they? But in fact, they are. Because you see, who they are is hidden here in the text. They are those who were brought by Esharadon, king of Assyria, more than 150 years ago. These are the Samaritans. Now, when I say Samaritans to you, the first thing I think that pops into your mind is a kindly woman at a well that Jesus talks to. But you have to understand, there is a reason why the Jews hated the Samaritans and why they wanted to be with her at the well. It's because the Samaritans were a people that were literally dragged into that area, Samaria, that's where they get their name from, by the Assyrians after they had deported all of the kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes. And then they brought these people in, a mishmash of people who served a mishmash of gods, and they said, well, we need something to tie them together. Somebody find a priest of Israel, and he could teach them the religion of the land. So they found a priest, and he taught them from the Scriptures, but he didn't do a very good And so what wound up happening from that point on was they served the Lord, but they also served other gods. It was a mishmash of religion. It was what we might think of today in terms of civic religion, where we have interfaith ceremonies, where we claim to stand up and pray to God. Oh, and by the way, Allah too. Oh, and by the way, the birds in the trees too. Oh, and by the way, our reincarnated ancestors too. You see, that's what it was. And you see, the audacity of these people to come up and say, we worship the Lord like you do, is obviously false. It's a false claim. And you see, this is not a civic project. This is not building a road. This is not laying out some houses. This is building the temple of the Lord. And so this would be on a line of some people who God, but also worship Allah coming in and saying, can we help you set up your worship service? We worship God like you do. No, you don't. You're trying to change the very core of who we are because we are God's set-apart people. What do we have to do with you? You see, the real motive that they had here was to find a pluralism, to change the people of God. This is strikingly similar to what we experience every day of the week. I have to tell you that one of the most difficult things to deal with as a is not to speak with people who are unbelievers and who are pagans. It is with people who have some kind of vague notion of who God is and assume that being nice is being Christian and that they believe exactly what I believe. And that if I try and sharpen that pencil at all, I'm some sort of mean, wicked man. I get invitations regularly to interfaith dialogues in which somehow standing alongside and validating Muslims, Jews, Buddhists, and Hindus will make me a better Christian. 
You see, that's what's going on here. It is opposition to the kingdom of God. Do not be fooled by the apparent niceness. Because you see, just like in the world today, when someone tells you that you need to be nice to be a Christian, you need to be accepting of them, the minute that you say anything contrary to what they want, what do they do? They turn on you in an instant. It's exactly what happens here, doesn't it? The people who want to help, the people who are so giving, the people who are so nice, as soon as their way is not done, what do they do? They go out and they discourage the people of Judah and they bribe counselors against them. Their true colors come out. You see, this is the reality of opposition. Discouragement is a powerful weapon in the hands of the enemy. Many of you have read or have heard of or listened to C.S. Lewis's great little book, The Screwtape Letters. There's a wonderful line in there where Screwtape advises Wormwood to make more use of discouragement because it always works. And isn't that true? You see, we can have people challenge our faith, stand in our face and yell at us, try and hurt us financially. But when we are discouraged, it's hard to get out of bed, isn't it? It's discouragement that really just takes the wind out of our sails. And that's exactly what the enemies of God are doing here. Because you see, when we are, dis- when we are discouraged, when others discourage us, they play on our hope of comfort. Isn't that right? We want to be comfortable. We want life to be easy. We want not to have difficulties. And when we're discouraged, it turns that on its head. Let me ask you a question. It is not a matter of if you will be discouraged, but when. And when you are discouraged, what encourages you? What needs to turn your thought patterns around? Does it have to be a change in circumstances? Does it have to be being right? Well, can you be encouraged simply by the promises of God's Word? Can you be encouraged by Christian fellowship? Now, neither of those things are going to change your circumstances immediately, but they can change your attitude in your circumstances. But it's not just discouragement that the enemies of the gospel use, is it? It's also intimidation. Look at what they do. They not only discourage them, they make them afraid to build. Now, let's put that in our modern context. The people of Judah and Benjamin are going out getting ready to build and they come up next to them and they say, you know what? Um, You can't build there because uh, we filed a lawsuit. Um, We've changed the zoning. You need to go to the government process. If you do that, we're going to sue you and your pants and we're going to take everything you own and your houses and all of your retirements and everything. It might even be sharper than that. You see, we don't experience this here, but in other countries, like Uganda, people come alongside and they say, if you go in that church, we're going to burn it down and kill you. You see, the enemy uses fear as well. They try and intimidate. 
So the question here is, not just how do you deal with discouragement, but how do you deal with fear? Because if you say, I'm never afraid, you're lying. The Bible is full of commands not to fear because the Lord knows we're a fearful people. So how do you deal with fear? Do you lean upon the promises of God and knowing that He will be enough for you? Discouragement and intimidation. But there's more than that. There's also deception. Do you see what they say here? To they, they bribe counselors. They find lobbyists to go into the Persian court and to badmouth the church. That seems impossible that that would ever happen, doesn't it? I guess none of us have ever been to Washington, D.C. Because you see, this is happening more and more with regularities. And the deception here is that the people of God are the ones who are intolerant. You're intolerant about marriage because you won't think exactly what we think about it. You're intolerant about morality because you question our opinions. You're intolerant about the truth itself because you will not let us say what truth is. You're intolerant about people's hope because you think you know where salvation is found. You see, it's deceptive. When we're lied about, it hurts, doesn't it? It's one thing to have opposition. It's another thing to have opposition where we know we are right and just. This is what Joseph faced this morning. The attack upon him was the exact opposite of what he had done. So then the third question comes to you, how do you deal with lies that will be said about you? Because if you think you will never be lied about, you need to take a lesson. Because you will be. It's how the enemy works. Through discouragement, intimidation, and deception. Well, there's this opposition at the beginning of chapter 4. And then there's these long series of letters. And it can be confusing because you see... Really, in reality, what would make this chapter easier to understand is if we had bracket marks. You could actually draw them in your Bible at the beginning of verse 6 and at the end of verse 23. Because you see what's happening here. The opposition to the temple in 530 B.C. is being described in the first five verses of this chapter. And then our author then begins to describe opposition that is happening decades later to the people of God. You see, Ahasuerus, who is also Xerxes, you remember him from the book of Esther, the great king of Persia who invaded Greece, he does not come on the scene until about 50 or 60 years later. And then his brother who succeeds him by murdering him, Artaxerxes, comes on the scene 20 years later. And so we're talking about a span of about 100 years later from verse 5 to verse 6 and following. Now, why is this the way? It's, it's actually very confusing. What's being described here in the middle section of this book is not opposition to the building of the temple, but opposition to the building of the walls of the city later. Not in the 500s B.C., but in the 400s B.C. Now, why would the author do this? 
Why would he make it so hard on the preacher that he's got to go through a history lesson? I think there's a reason here. Because you see, we might be tempted if all we saw was this opposition to say, yeah, that was tough times then. And think that the opposition to the kingdom of God is punctuated at various points in times. But you see, our author is describing for us the regularity of opposition to the kingdom of God. It's not just this thing that is happening. It is not this time where opposition comes. There is always opposition. No matter where the kingdom is expanding, no matter where the kingdom is growing, no matter where God is at work, the devil is opposing. And that's what's happening here. You see, there's an interlude involved here. These are the same old of attacks just at different times. It reminds us that we should not be surprised when we see opposition because it occurs throughout the history of the church. And I think it's actually very interesting the reasons that are laid out for opposition. Look with me, if you would, at verse 13. You see, the opposition says about the people of God here as they're building the city of Jerusalem, now let it be known that if this city is built, they won't give the government any money. They won't pay their taxes. We'd never hear that now, would we? It's the exact same kind of a tax that we see today. You can go home right now and get on the Internet and see people railing against the charitable exemption. Because religious people don't pay enough taxes. They don't support the government. They don't give enough. They're selfish. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Because as God has said to us, it is a command to pay our taxes. So of all people, the Christians should be the most honest of taxpayers. And then we go to verse 14. Now, let me tell you, king... Get away with this, they will dishonor you. This is something that again we see today, isn't it? Christians don't trust the government. They don't honor the rulers over them. They don't obey the law. They don't do what they're supposed to. They're a kingdom unto themselves. And yet again, if we follow the words of Scripture, Christians should be the ones obeying the Word of God in Romans 13 saying that the authorities that are placed over us are lawful. We may not always like them. We may not always agree with them. But we see that they are ordained of God. We do not dishonor or rebel against them. Actually, Paul commands us to pray for those who are in authority over us. You see, it's the same kind of attack. Look at verse 15. Now you see, look at the records, king. These people rebelled before. This is also something that is brought up, isn't it? Well, they opposed this law. They opposed that law. You can't trust Christians ever. You see, it's the same kind of attacks that Satan uses. And then in verse 16, there's perhaps the most humorous of all attacks. You know, King, if you don't get now, Jews, they're going to take over the world. They're going to take over all of that area. And you see, when they're talking about the province beyond the river, that is not just Jerusalem. You see, the opposition here is actually claiming, if you let this little ragtag group of Israelites build a wall around Jerusalem, they're going to take over all of Syria, all of Egypt, all of Palestine, and you'll be 
cut out. O Persian emperor with the largest army that the world has ever seen. But you see again, isn't that an attack that's made upon the church? If we give an inch, if we give the Christians one inch of an exemption on health care laws, on not providing abortions, well, they'll take over the whole thing. Right? And you see, it is a lie of the enemy used to oppose the kingdom of God. So what do we do in the midst of this? Opposition is real. Opposition is before us. It is regular. You will go to school and see opposition. And you will graduate and you will go to work and you will see opposition. And you will retire and you will move to a different community. You will see opposition. What we need to do is resist opposition. But what does that look like? Sometimes I'm afraid that resisting opposition in the circles of the church consists of yelling louder than other people. Passing more laws than other people. Even now, taking up arms. I think resisting the opposition of the kingdom of God must take on a more spiritual nature. Because you see, these are not physical attacks. These are spiritual attacks. So I'd like to just describe for you very briefly three things that you can do today as you leave to resist the opposition of the enemy in your life, in the church, and in the world. The first thing you must do is you must keep sight of God. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? But when you're in the midst of a trial, when you're in the midst of opposition, what do you focus on? The trial. Or the enemy. We take our eyes off God and place the enemy. Or on the circumstances that are around us. But if we keep our eyes on God, we then can put the trial in a context. Even and for Joseph. We can ask questions like, why is the opposition here now? Why does God have this? And it may very well be that the reason the opposition is before us and is strong is because the kingdom is advancing. And that is where Satan is at work. And we can be encouraged, even in the midst of the opposition, because we know that God is at work in our midst. The second question we can ask ourselves is, why are we here? When you have opposition, say to yourself, why am I here? What am I to do? What is my purpose? What would the Lord have me do? If we keep a divine perspective on circumstances, we can resist opposition. There is a second way to resist opposition. And it is not found in chapter 4. And I think that's part of the reason why, for a time, the Israelites were defeated. You see, if you take out that bracket, that parenthesis... If you go right from verse 5 to verse 24, you will see that the work on the house of God stopped, and it stopped for more than a decade. What is missing in this chapter? Not once do we see prayer. Not once. 
You see, the people of God here are facing opposition and they do not seek the source of all might and power and goodness in the Lord. They don't seek the wisdom of God in prayer. And so if we are to resist the enemy, if we are to hold back the forces of evil, we must be a praying people. Thirdly and finally, if we are to resist opposition, we must be faithful. And by that I mean we must exercise our faith. It must be active. It must be something that grips us. We have to be people who trust. People who trust God's Word. Who stand upon it and are not ashamed of it. Let me tell you right now. If you are not standing upon the Word of God, your opinions, your beliefs, your idea of truth will change every day of the week. How many people have we seen just in the last month completely change their view of marriage? For no reason at all. Not even giving any good arguments. But you see, it's because they're not grounded in God. You see, we don't have a view of biblical marriage because it is a foundation of the society. Or because it's children. Or because it's something America has had for 200 years. No, we have our view of marriage because it is what God says. And then we're not swayed. The second thing we must trust is God's promise. Because you see, our opponents seek to rob us of that joy and to steal it from us. To tell us we can be defeated. That we have no hope. But you see, we have the promise of God. And we must be faithful. We must exercise faith and go after the promise of God. Lastly, we must trust God's Victory. You've heard me say it before. I know the end of the Bible. I know the end of the story. God wins. We can't forget that. You see, sometimes we get caught up in our own circumstances and we think the church is dying or we think our society is dying or we think we can't survive and we have to understand that in the final analysis, all of history is being worked out for the victory of God in Jesus Christ. There is no doubt of that. No matter what happens next week, there is no doubt of that. I don't care what North Korea does. I don't care what Congress does. I don't care what the colleges do. They cannot change the certainty of the victory of the Lord God. When we understand that, and that grips us, we're ready for opposition. We are a realistic people. We know that our enemy is out there. We know that he seeks to destroy the works of God. But we also know that God is at work. And that his victory is sure.